Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. The first thing I just had to do was find out where the shark was. I was absolutely petrified, whether it was underneath me, whether it was to my side. From the little that I knew, or great whites, they would circle and they would move away. Many of us were flinched thinking about the prospect of sharks lurking close to the shore and the danger that getting into the ocean can represent. But one man who was attacked by a shark 60 years ago at St Clair in Dunedin and lived to tell the tale is Barry Watkins. Kia ora, I'm Sonia Yee, and you're listening to Eyewitness, a podcast exploring moments and events in history witnessed by the people who were there. It was a Tuesday morning on the 30th of March 1971 when Barry was 16 years old and he and his mates had planned to skip school that day. Well, my friend and I, Ian Anderson, actually had plotted the day and that we knew that the swimming sports were on and we looked at the conditions and knew the conditions would be pretty good. We thought, well, if we were going to get in the water, we'd rather do it on our own terms and nobody would miss us at the school sports. So we had actually hidden our surfboards in the sand dunes the day before because we didn't want our parents to know. By 8am they set foot in their school uniforms so as not to give the game away and took a detour to St Kilda to collect their surfboards from the sand dunes. There they headed off to St Clair. It was a typical sort of autumn, I suppose, autumn, wintry type morning in Dunedin. It would probably have been about 15 odd degrees, um, a light nor'easterly. Swell was really nice, um, south swell, about probably between three to five foot in the old terms, or metre, metre and a half. And the cloud was clearing. The beauty of it was we knew that probably nobody else would be there because everybody was at work and at school. But for Barry, surfing and rebellion went hand in hand. He can't recall whether he skipped school just to go surfing any other time, but on this day, he was itching to get out in the water. He just bought a brand new surfboard off a guy in Christchurch. It wasn't a run-of-the-mill kind of board either. It was in a time when surfing was going what they called the shortboard revolution, where we were going away from surfboards that were in the eight to nine foot range and boards were getting shorter and shorter and shorter and I had just bought this board and it was only about six foot long and that's why we were so keen to to get out because we wanted to try these boards. They were so much shorter and lighter and um, quite a revolution in surfing in those days and I only paid $80 for it, probably paid too much for it but we considered it to be, you know, the, the... the perfect new design and that's probably half the reason why it was I was so keen to to go surfing was to try this board out. It was also an era where they were told not to get in the water. We would sit for 
for periods of time and just observe and actually look for fins breaking the surface. Like we were told not to run dogs on the beach because they believed they attracted the sharks. We were told what sort of colour clothing we should be wearing because there was a lot of misinformation. I think for quite a while there, a lot of people refused to actually believe that great whites lived in the area. They sort of had the mindset that the sharks were in a, the tropical warmer waters. They wouldn't come into the colder waters. Um, but it pretty soon became really well known that we were dealing with great whites. And at that time, there was a larger number of seals than I believe that's there. And really, the seals are the main prey of the great white. There are 60 beaches within a 30-minute drive from the centre of Dunedin, which in general is known for great surfing, with its wide-open swells from the southwest to the northeast, ranging from 1 to 3 metres, and often 4 to 6 metres or more during winter. And St Clair was no exception. Now, as Barry mentioned, there wasn't really any clarity about sharks in the area, their habits or their actual whereabouts. So the advice that was given... If you were to come face to face with one... Punch them in the nose, they don't like it. If anyone can put that into practice while they're being attacked, I I would certainly congratulate them. But shark attacks were a very real concern. There had been five attacks between 1964 and 1971, and everyone in the area was aware of them. Three of the five attacked, Les Jordan, Bill Black and Graham Hitt, were killed. One was out at Aramoana, which is away from... You've got St Kilda and you've got St Clair, and they're actually the same stretch of beach, which goes from Lawyer's Head down to St Clair Point. Aramoana is out at the end of the Otago Harbour, and that's where Graham hit. was a fatality. Um, He was trailing fish, and he was actually scuba diving, and he was, I believe, bitten across both legs... Les Jordan was a fatality, he was a surfer at St Clair and then of course there was Bill Black at St Kilda and yeah, I believe it's recorded in the World Shark Attacks as the most horrific attack ever recorded. Sadly, they never found Bill's body. They believe he was eaten whole. The only remnants they found was the um, belt that the surf life savers wore, which went around his abdomen and round his, and the hoop went round the neck. They found that. But still, that didn't keep Barry and his friends from surfing. The three of us walked down the steps and we paddled out through the rip adjacent to the bars. On the way out, Jock and Ian, we decided we would go out to the point because the waves were best out there. But Barry spotted some other waves that were breaking to the left into the rip. No one else was there, so he headed in that direction. I actually followed left, paddling north, I suppose, whereas Jock and Ian just carried on out to the point. I could still see them. They were not far off the seaweed, and I was closer to the beach, more out in front of the esplanade, I suppose. While swimming into a rip might sound counterintuitive to those of us especially who were told by lifeguards to stay away from them, for Barry, it was perfect. Because it's so easy to get out, because the water's just like a conveyor belt. So it just takes you straight out and there's no waves breaking there, so it makes the paddle out really easy, because then you just paddle back out again. But once he got there, he'd be on his own. I was in the process of paddling back out and going back over to where I'd caught previous waves 
and there was just an almighty impact. I was actually still moving, I could actually feel the water pushing off around my back and I was being pushed down into the water, being pushed along like grabbed in a vice if you like and that whole feeling of oh my god what's going on here. Barry thinks he's been accidentally hit by a boat and that the force of it has plunged him round the bow, driving him underwater. Rapidly realised that A, I would have heard the boat and B, those guys probably would have seen me. It was the impact that was the most frightening thing. But I can't really say that I actually felt like I had been wounded or hurt. I knew I had been hit really hard and I was sore. And I looked down to my left and the shark was letting go of my board and my leg and sliding back into the water. Barry's still on his board. His injury is starting to become more apparent. I could see the blood and I could see my leg and basically I'd received the, the top row of the teeth, the top of my thigh down to the bottom of my knee. The bottom row of his teeth had gone into the surfboard, which probably invariably saved my life in that I still had a whole leg. When the great white takes a bite, then uses body pivot and tears off what it has bitten. Well, in this case, the shark had bitten that far that it had got its jaws jammed in the back of the surfboard. He'd made a bite that had not been completed, and that's why he'd released. Once a shark releases its bite, it slips beneath Barry. And at that point, he realises he's still in danger. Because I'm by myself, it's a big creature, and... I'm in serious trouble here. Because by now, Barry has no idea where the shark is and whether it's still lurking around where he can't see it. And that's when the real fear and panic starts kicking in. With the blood starting to then lie on the water, I think I was just screaming like like I'd never screamed before, I suppose. From the little that I knew of Great Whites, they would circle and they would move away. But I was still just lying on the surfboard and... It was then that I'd seen that the shark had gone further away from me, but then it went round behind me and I lost sight of it. But Barry is still some distance from his friends and any help nearby. Because they would have been able to hear me. What they basically did instantly was turn round and paddle into the seaweed. It's there they hoped for protection. Now, around this time, there was a belief that sharks didn't like to swim amongst seaweed, But recent studies have revealed that great whites will even manoeuvre their way through kelp forests. Yeah, I would have done the same. I mean, you hear these stories of some attacks where guys have gone to their rescue and I totally admire them, but it's whether you can do any good and I I can't see how another guy on a board could actually stop a great white. And as Barry suspected, he was still in danger. The same great white was going in for round two. And he bit into the board again on the left-hand side. This time, missing Barry's leg. Shook his head from side to side. And then he basically took the board and tossed it through the air. And the board 
took off and flew through the air and landed in the water. It broke the leg rope. That's how much power was going on because I had a leg rope tied around my leg to the surfboard. That snapped and the board actually floated away and I was left bobbing in the water like a cork. So the surfboard was probably about six feet away from me. I was treading water, screaming, and the shark had just ducked down again and disappeared. His hope is diminishing with every minute, especially without the surfboard to protect him. I think the mental state I'd gone into was somewhere where I don't think many people have been. Barry continues bobbing vertically in the water, and the shark begins to circle. His dorsal fin was about three feet off to my left-hand side. So my head was at water level. The dorsal fin was probably half a metre, 400 mils above the water, and I thought, well, if that's the size of the dorsal fin, this is a fairly large fish. That's when my fear went even further through the red zone. And I actually rode up on the bulge of his pressure wave as he went past. I could feel myself actually rise up in the water and I could see the, 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 the main part of the, in front of me and I looked back from the dorsal fin and I could see his, his tail fin breaking the water there. And he basically carried past me and continued around and then circled and he must have done, I don't know, probably five or six circles around me and this guy is obviously taking bites till he gets hold of something substantial and I'm probably going to be that substantial bit that he's after. Clutching for dear life, his eyes are fixated on the fin approaching again. It was just like, is this what it's like to die? And I was actually like saying goodbyes. I was like, I wanted to apologise to my mum. Um, Yeah. <laughs> it was quite incredible, quite incredible. The 16-year-old student doesn't know whether he'd started moving towards the board or whether it was being pushed in his direction, but he managed to grab hold and wrapped his arms around the board, which helped to float him up out of the water and offered a sense of security. I was actually only holding on to about three feet of fibreglass. So I had my chest and maybe my abdomen on the board and was holding on to the rest of it. And this next moment leaves a memory behind that Barry will never forget. I was like turning, twisting, thrashing, amazing looking creature. Has picked its head up and plonked it, had its head out of the water and was sort of like looking at me. It seemed like maybe 10 seconds. It just lay there. I could have quite easily punched it, poked it in the eye, done it, but I was just fixated on holding on to the circuit. And it just sat its head there and there was these big clicking noises and it looked like its lenses and its eyes were closing and opening. But John Darby, the zoologist, lately told me probably more unlikely the noise I was hearing was its skin scratching on the surface of the surfboard. And then it just slid back, put one bite of the board, and I could hear the crunching of the fibreglass, and I thought, lordy be, he's got a really good bite this time. And he thrashed his head side to side. Um, water was spraying everywhere and I was holding on like I was on a roller coaster. 
And after about the second or third tossing of his head, the board snapped in half. So myself and about three foot of fiberglass bounced across the surface with a piece of fiberglass, which was my surfboard, and landed off to the left. The other bit flew out of his mouth and took off towards the rocks. Fortunately, Barry's in a good position to be rescued. I could hear guys screaming and yelling and, we're coming, we're coming. I know a guy, Alistair Moore, came, and I know Dave Crooks came. I remember Alistair picking me up and putting me in a fireman's carry. I think Dave actually was the first guy to grab me and haul me through that deep channel up onto the flatter part of the beach. That's where Alistair Moore picked me up, tossed me across his shoulder and and carried me up to the esplanade. Finally in hospital, the doctors put a tourniquet on his upper left leg. His father, who worked not far from St Clair, had been told of a shark attack when he discovered it was his own son, dread set in. Both his parents expected the worst. It affected my dad quite badly, and my father made the trip to the hospital thinking he was coming to identify a body. But Barry was elated to see his parents at the hospital. He was kept there for up to four hours and received about 90-odd stitches. Yeah, I was very lucky in that there was basically just the incision of the teeth. I'd lost no flesh, you know, I'd lost blood, but that was replaced. And when Barry returned to school... He received a stern warning from the headmaster. Who was very understanding and told me that it wasn't school policy to feed truants to sharks. He didn't want to see any more of this monkey business. He never wagged school after that day. After the shark attack, Barry's story was published in the Sydney Morning Herald and his story gained international interest. The surfboard was sent to a marine laboratory in San Diego where it was assessed by experts who were able to identify the size of the shark based on the bite marks left in the board. They realised that during the attack it actually lost one tooth because one bite shows X amount of teeth and then the next bite that tooth is not there. But I believe the Great White has like a typewriter system where new teeth just fold instantly into place. But it would take him at least two and a half years and a lot of encouragement from friends before he'd get back in the water and go surfing again. But to this day, he hasn't really been back to St Clair. I've, I've donated that plaque that's on the Esplanade in Dunedin and I'm just really lucky that we haven't had to add another name to it. It's been 60 long years since that shark attack and along with a very dramatic story of survival, he's sometimes haunted by that image of the shark's head resting on his board. There's also the niggly ache around the scar along his upper left leg that also regularly reminds him of that day. So, how does Barry feel about sharks today? Is it a warning that we should be afraid to go in the water? And what should we know about sharks beyond the myths and horror stories? Great White, they haven't... I don't know their movements, but I don't think they've totally disappeared. They're still out there in the ocean, and it's just really great that, especially with the surfing numbers that are in the South Island, that that no one else has, has had an attack take place. These days, Barry lives not far from Wellington, and his surfboard is held at the Otago Museum, where it's currently on display. I wouldn't say it's the worst day of my life in that, A, I survived... B, it, it gave me memories that, that are quite inconceivable in a lot of ways. I, I met 
the, the, the family of Bill Black, and that was really quite horrendous to me, knowing that they'd lost their son through a shark attack. So I figured, you know, it's, it's better to try and be uplifted by, by the good things that happen rather than wallow in the, the sadness that those poor people have suffered. They're amazing creatures, and I was lucky enough to go in, into a cage and see them firsthand, and they're quite awe-inspiring. I mean, like, do you want to kill all the lions and tigers? Do you want to kill all the snakes? Um, I just think we should understand that they're there and live and let live, and if you don't want to run into one, well, don't go swimming in the ocean. You're listening to Eyewitness... That was Barry Watkins, and I'm your host and producer, Sonia Yee. The sound engineer for this episode was Phil Bench. If you'd like to listen to any other episodes from the series, head to the RNZ Series and Podcast page and look for Eyewitness, or download and follow via Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.